are bringing you another little bonus episode about a book that I have written and published called To Baptize or Not to Baptize, A Practical Guide for Clergy. And um, Dad, as usual, is my interlocutor. But in this case, particularly Dad, I have to say thank you because you read my first version of this book, which attempted to be too efficient and too short and left out too much. And you came back with some very helpful criticism. And then you have recently read the second version, which is the one that will be published. And actually, we haven't really talked about it yet. You just sent me an email with a thumbs up, basically, and saying much better this time around. But uh, perhaps you would like to offer some comments comparing the first and second or, yeah. Uh, Yeah. If the pastoral office is an office of judgment in which you're constantly making judgments. What music is appropriate to this liturgy? Uh, what uh, emphases in the texts should I bring out in the sermon? Uh, how does the sermon connect with the life of the congregation? Uh, you know, those are just very basic elementary judgments that the pastor makes uh, uh, every week of his or her life. Uh, and perhaps one of the most important judgments you make is to baptize or not to baptize. The question of the book of Acts is, is there anything to hinder this one from being baptized? Now, in context, of course, it was meant rhetorically to say there's nothing to hinder the baptism of the eunuch, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, or Cornelius and his people, or whatever. There's nothing to hinder it. But presumably there could be things to hinder a baptism. Uh, And you have to be able to think clearly uh, about what are those possibilities, uh, what are the proper conditions to administer the sacrament of baptism, and uh, what possible Uh, exceptions to that would there be. Uh, And, you know, I think you and I have been battling throughout the podcast these years against the Lutheran heresy of cheap grace, in which basically you just want to throw a bucket of water upon anybody you come across. Uh, That actually happened in my youth, uh, where some pastors went on the subways in New York City uh, with the with communion, with the, and we're trying to give communion to people on <laughs> the subways, you know, uh, it just, just, you know, this absurd idea that we're going to throw a bucket of water uh, uh, upon the unwashed masses and baptize them or something like that. Of course, why wouldn't you do that? What's wrong with that? Why wouldn't you do that? Those are the kind of questions that have to be entertained here. And I think you've written uh, a judicious little book with a nice, uh, concise, and clear introduction to the theology of baptism that discusses the questions of validity, efficaciousness, integrity, and am I missing one there? Is there a fourth Safety one? and permission. Right, safety and permission. Okay, so you, those are your four basic categories, and then you go through a whole series of case studies that come out of your own teaching experience, right? Why don't you tell us about that? Right. So this book, you know, I've actually only baptized four people in my life, and I have 
four godchildren, and of course, my son is baptized. So my direct involvement, and I'm baptized, <laughs> my direct involvement with baptism as a pastor is fairly modest. So what this came out of is the annual teaching I've done in Wittenberg, Germany, every year since 2009 with my colleague, Theo Dieter. And um, we it gathers pastors from all over the world. I mean, it's amazing. I've met pastors from Greenland, from Senegal. I met a third generation pastor from Myanmar. Like I couldn't even believe it was possible to have three generations of Lutheran pastors in Myanmar and, um, you know, just all over the world. So anyway, as part of our teaching, we always do a unit on baptism. And so fairly early on, just for the fun of it, I recalled um, some case studies from my own Lutheran confessions class back in seminary and created this little game called to baptize or not to baptize. And I'd put maybe, I don't know, 10 up on the board and kind of let people pick according to what their you know particular setting, what, what would be most likely to cause a, a question or a problem or need for discernment. And so what was amazing is over the years, my the kind of ones that just came naturally to my mind, people brought more and more case studies and said, well, what about this and what about that? And um, actually, the whole section, that fourth section on safety and permission, that really came out of um, Christians who live in contexts where they face actual persecution. Um, but then also thinking about that extended onward to um uh, families that are no longer just automatically baptizing down through the generations. So there's real differences between what the parents think or um, something like that. And then, of course, pandemic conditions, um, safety issues around someone's health and so forth. So just the more I got into it, the more I was astonished at the number of different cases where a pastor has to render judgments. So I collected up those case studies over the years. And finally, you know, probably last year, which was the first time because of the pandemic, I didn't go physically to Wittenberg to teach, but did an online course. And we once again played to baptize or not to baptize. Um, I thought, you know what, I've accumulated so much interesting wisdom here from so many pastors around the world, it's time to share this with a wider audience. And so that's why I wrote the book with this first half with a, a basic baptismal theology. And then the second half is almost 50 case studies in, in, in three different categories. And they're kind of narrated as little stories um, so that, and I, I, I realized that I needed to tell them as stories so that it puts the pastor who's reading it in the mind of like, this is, this isn't like a, a dead rule in a rule book somewhere, but this is like a living circumstance and you can adjust the details to your own particular case, but to try to get in that habit of thinking through real life situations and how to handle them. Well, why don't you, in, in the form of an appetizer, give us a, some samples of some of these, uh, of these actual cases that uh, you discuss in your little book. Right. Well, so, so the first um, one is on validity and the, um, the common questions about validity are the name. So, for instance, can you baptize in a name other than the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So we all know that there have been actual baptisms, so-called, um, performed in the name of Creator, Spirit, uh, Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. I judge that not a valid baptism. Um, but actually, to me, the more interesting question was in the name of Jesus. To my knowledge, only oneness Pentecostals do that. Um, this is an offshoot of the early Pentecostal movements that um, somebody claimed to have a revelation that they should be baptizing only in the name of Jesus. And this led to an, an anti-Trinitarian stance, though not like 
old school Unitarian, more like Jesus is all God and Father and Spirit are are more like modalist expressions of Jesus. Um, but it is in the Bible. Like in the book of Acts, you, baptisms are in the name of Jesus. So can you bap- validly baptize in the name of Jesus? It sounds outrageous to disagree with the Bible, but I would say if you actually look at why Acts talks about baptism in the name of Jesus, what it is against and what it is for, and then set that in apposition with in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, that latter name, the one, the standard Trinitarian name actually is is the, the fuller and more accurate and catechetically effective choice. It has been the one the church has used almost all of its history. And the fact that nobody avoids it except those who are denying the doctrine of the Trinity, I think is all very suggestive that, um, yes, we should not baptize in the name of Jesus, but in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. That's that's helpful. That's a validity case. Is this baptism valid? Is it the real thing? Well, what would be an example of an integrity case? Right. Um, so I think the first thing to say is that um, what I'm talking about integrity cases, I'm not actually asking whether you could in any of these particular instances pull off a valid baptism. I'm assuming in every case that you could actually pull off a valid baptism. So the, the issue at stake is whether the way in which the baptism is conducted is in keeping with the message that it is sending. So it's the reason I call it integrity is because you could do um, a valid baptism, presumably, in a restaurant late at night after cocktails. You could stick your fingers into a glass of ice water and shoot it across the forehead of the person next to you who presumably has not yet been baptized and slur out the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I don't know, that's pretty iffy, but you could theoretically do a a valid baptism that way. So this question is really, the integrity case is really about, is the baptism done in keeping with what baptism actually is, what it means, what it, uh, the the claim it makes on a person's life, the transformation that comes with it. So the first one, um, the first case in this set is one that is particularly neuralgic in the um, dying folk and state churches of Europe, (laughs) which is you've never seen the parents before. They show up because you're the local parish. They have a baby. They want their kid done. They don't want catechesis. They are not interested in the meaning. They don't intend to come to church. You know, it's just the ritual. They want the party. This is what's expected. Um, And it's very clear that they are not actually believers or in any way um, open to being taught or being engaged in the life of the church. I have met uh, a not insignificant number of pastors from these places who simply assumed that baptizing anyway was grace because God doesn't care what you think or believe. God simply gives you generously grace no matter what. And after working through Luther on baptism, a number of these pastors have said, oh, maybe grace isn't just throwing a sacrament at someone and never seeing them again. And um, so thinking through what exactly is involved when, first of all, you are parents bringing an infant 
to baptism. Um, I make a very strong case in this book for infant baptism, but with the understanding that this directly springs out of the pervasive biblical theme of standing in, interceding for others, and believing on behalf of, of others as a stewardship or trust until such time as it becomes their own. And you, you can read the book. There are lots of examples of this, not only where baptism is concerned, but also where baptism is concerned. This is why we can baptize infants, not because, um, you know, grace is indifferent to age. That's not at all the point. And so I think if you are going to defend the baptism of infants to those who demand baptism only upon, say, confession of faith, then you have to carry it out with integrity. And the fact is there are tons of rebaptisms of infant baptized children who were done, it was, they were baptized as a matter of course by unbelieving parents and unengaged church. And at some point, they just think it's all a big lie. And then when they come to real faith on their own, they get rebaptized. And I've heard lots of infant baptizer churches outraged that, you know, how dare these Baptists rebaptize our member. But if you have failed so badly to, to execute infant baptism in a way with integrity, I can understand why the rebaptizers think there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. They also have a whole different theology of baptism, which I take up in the book. But um, that is, I would say, probably the most neuralgic case in the Lutheran world, in the whole book. Yeah, and I think, Sarah, it's very wholesome, as you mentioned, uh, the pastors from Europe rereading Luther on baptism and making a discovery here. I think it's very wholesome, especially for Lutherans, to actually read Menno Simmons and his attack on the great idol of infant baptism. And it's helpful for Lutherans to read Karl Barth and his second nine, his nine, his no to infant baptism as he pondered uh, the German churches in Europe uh, returning to normal after World War II as if uh, hundreds of thousands of baptized Christians had not fought uh, with ferocious loyalty to the cause of National Socialism. Uh, I think hearing those critiques has a lot to do with what you're calling uh, the integrity of, of uh, baptism, and um, I'm very happy that you have raised that issue in the little book so pointedly. pointedly. Yeah, this, you know, this book also comes out of my long ecumenical work now with Pentecostals who, there are some Pentecostals who baptize infants, but by and large, they baptize upon confession, often called believer's baptism. And so another thing I'm trying to do in this book is really make the best fairest case I can for the requirement of baptism only upon confession. There are, you know, there there are various ways this is talked about, whether it's as a matter of free will or as a matter of like conscious discipled commitment to Christ, or it's just um, our membership policy. Like there, there's a whole range from more and less integrity on that side too. But I thought it was really important to show the fact that it you know, the argument is actually not about age. The argument is fundamentally whether baptism is primarily God's act upon the passive recipient who is baptized, or if baptism is a human act of witness to God 
the church and the world. And, you know, in both positions, there is some of the other. Uh, you know, I think um, uh, adult baptizers at their best would understand that it's it's God's prevenient grace that, that drove and called them to baptism. And at, at their best, those who baptize infants also want those infants to grow in faith, to make confession of faith. That's why we have confirmation, among other things. So they're not mutually exclusive positions, but there is a fundamental difference of orientation, whether it's primarily God's act or primarily a human act. And so you can see why um, adult baptizers make the kind of decisions they do, the judgment calls they do, based on the idea that it's primarily a human act. I think that's a position that can be held with integrity. I actually, somewhat to my surprise, came to the conclusion that the argument that would also baptize the infants and children of believing parents is actually a stronger case and more reflective of the whole biblical witness. I actually sort of expected going into it to be um, disappointingly talked out of infant baptism. And I I've actually think, no, I actually think it is, in fact, the stronger case to be made. However, it's exactly in this difference of opinion, of judgment about what baptism actually is, that we have to n navigate a lot of huge thorny ecumenical problems, specifically around rebaptism. So the book also involves a clarion call to adult baptizers, please do not rebaptize those who have been baptized before, including in infancy. If you see it as a matter of public confession, then let the person make their testimony and see that as the completion of the incomplete infant baptism, but don't create the scandal of rebaptizing. But I equally strongly call out churches that baptize infants to do so with integrity, not willy-nilly, not as cheap grace, not because you're a citizen of this nation and of course we baptize all infants because everybody here is Lutheran or Catholic or Orthodox or whatever, that that also is a fundamental violation of our own baptismal theology to baptize in that fashion. So I see this really as um, a challenge across the board across all baptismal practices to um, overcome the scandal of rebaptism, but it, the, the weight is equally on both sides. Wonderful. That's the good ecumenical theology should always work like that, where it issues uh, concrete, specific challenges to both sides and traditional disputes, and I think that's, that's really right on target. So um, I just want to maybe... Uh, conclude my re reactions to your book with this, that as I was reading the second, uh, the final version, uh, I was very pleased, of course, with the beefed up uh, the theology that with which the book, theology of baptism with which the book begins. And then I wondered, will I have the patience to read through all these test cases <laughs> uh, once again. And not only did I, I did, did so with enthusiasm. I found them all very interesting, thought-provoking, and I recommend uh, to our audience out there a similar experience in reading your new book. Well, that's great. And also, <laughs> in your email you sent me, you said, I missed my true calling as a canon lawyer. <laughs> 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 yeah, you're dealing with cases. You're a casuist. Yes, someone else, an, an uh, Episcopal, um, Episcopalian re reader also made the comment like, this is great. We need more casuistry. And my first reaction was like, 
Jesuits do casuistry, not a good Lutheran like me. But of course, casuistry <laughs> and case study are etymologically related. And um, but you know, I, let me just say this: yeah, um, there can be a kind of false casuistry, which is the endless codification and lifeless rules and bureaucratic procedures. What actually I really wanted to do with this book is to go through so many case studies because I wanted to empower pastors to make living judgments based on the gospel in the specific cases that they encounter. So, you know, even though I I make a judgment call in each particular case, this is not like a bossy book that's trying to tell you do this, don't do that, or else you're a bad pastor. It's actually trying to re-enable and reawaken the pastoral imagination and discernment process to be able to make calls that are consistent with the gospel and consistent with their own pastoral authority so that they are not tossed about by other demands that are not that are, that are not grounded in the gospel. Yeah, and so your exercise in casuistry, Sarah, is heuristic in purposes. Here, let me show you how to do this. Now, you try doing this yourself in your own circumstances, right? Exactly, exactly. That's exactly what I was going for. All right. Well, thanks, Dad. You're welcome, Sarah. Good book. <laughs>